0: Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind, I'm Brian McAllen. Before we get into today's show, I have two announcements to make. Former guest in California Council of the Blinds, San Francisco Chapter President, and membership contact Frank Welty says that CCB's Muttstrut continues to reach out for donations to this great cause. To donate, go to firstgiving.com slash California Council of the Blind. Frank also wants everyone to get in on CCB's great getaway sweepstakes. The first prize is two Southwest Airlines tickets. The sweepstakes entries are only two bucks each. For more information on these two exciting activities, call the CCB office at toll-free 1-800-2216-359. The local California number is 191-6441-2100. For more information on the Muttstrut, how to register and support Frank and his team, and win a fabulous prize, go to speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com and click on List of Episodes and Show News. Now for the second announcement. A group of Auckland University of Technology students are striving to create games for visually impaired people. The students have successfully released Audio Game Hump consisting of eight audio games available for free on both Google Play and the Apple App Store, as well as on PC. And the student-led group has begun a Kickstarter campaign to raise money and has already achieved over 150% of their goal. To learn about the campaign, go to kickstarter.com slash projects Slash one nine one five seven six six three two slash audio dash game dash hub dash keep dash your dash cars dash wide dash open and to access audio games hub's main page go to audiogameshub.com. dot com To find out more about today's announcements, go to speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com and click on List of Episodes and Show News. Now back to today's Speaking Out for the Blind show. For those listeners who have been visually impaired since birth, or as young children, your parents and care providers have probably told you about the challenges and lack of guidance during these critical early years of development. Today's guest will provide some explanation on what visually impaired kids need to thrive. Dr. K. Allison Furrell is a professor emerita of special education at the University of Northern Colorado, or UNC, at Greeley. The professor is not just your average instructor. Her research interests are the development of of young visually impaired children, outcomes for visually impaired students, cross-modal abilities of babies with disabilities, policy analysis, personnel preparation, and distance education. She's globally known for her work in the education and development of visually impaired individuals. Kay is here to talk more about her contributions to the blind and visually impaired community. Welcome to
0: Speaking Out for the Blind, Kay. Thank you, Brian. I'm honored to be here.
1: It's great having you here too. Before we get into your research specialties, let's learn a little bit more about you. You're in your bachelor's degree in Russian language and literature from George Washington University in nineteen seventy. Your master's in special education for the blind and visually impaired from Teachers College at Columbia in 1975, and your doctorate in special education from the University of Pittsburgh in 1983. How did this education path get you ready for the professor job and your research focus in special education?
0: Well, obviously, the Russian degree as an undergraduate didn't prepare me for much. Um, I graduated at the time of Kent State, and the last thing I wanted to do was to be a translator for the government, and that was the only position that was available at that time. So I ended up working as a legal secretary to a blind attorney, and actually, it was his idea that I should teach blind kids, and that's how I did my master's degree at Teachers College and uh, graduated from there in 1975. After a few years of teaching, I went on to get a doctorate because I decided that what I really wanted to do was influence parents and how parents work with their kids and interact with their kids because parents don't have a baby thinking that their baby is going to be blind, so they're not as prepared for that, and I wanted to help prepare them because I knew what the possibilities were. I would worked for this blind attorney who was a graduate of Harvard, and he literally changed my life.
1: Help prepare them for their future. Right. Your specialization and research interests, as we just talked about, revolve around the development and education of visually impaired children. Why did you specifically decide to specialize in this area?
0: I think because at the time I was doing my master's degree, I had a preschooler myself, so I became very interested um, in early development, and I wanted to extend that into my studies with visual impairment. Babies are my first love, and if you get babies off to a good start, you can make all the difference in the world, and you can see the changes so rapidly in infancy and early childhood, more so than you can at school age.
1: And they can grow not only in size, but also in their skills. That's right. The Tribune, this is the Greeley Tribune, Mm -hmm. because there's so many Tribunes out there. (laughs) (laughs) The newspaper says that you've also received an over $1 million study grant from the U.S. Department of Education. This grant is going to be used to study visually impaired toddlers and infants. Your research team includes a Ph.D. candidate, Catherine Smith and Jamie Erskine. Together, you're developing a model for helping families initiate mealtime routines for young visually impaired kids to help prepare them for independence at school. tell us more about this study and the colleagues working with you on this endeavor.
0: Sure. The um, grant is actually the Uh, brainchild of Catherine Smith, the doctoral candidate that you mentioned earlier. She's been one of my students for about seven years, and before she came to me, she was working on a um, grant that had been funded by the Gerber Foundation that was looking at how young blind children learn to feed themselves and looking at independence in mealtime, She wanted to take that a step farther, and I supported her in doing that by applying for a grant with the Institute for Education Sciences at the U.S. Department of Education. We collaborated with Jamie Erskine, who is a uh, dietetics and nutrition professor at the university here. And we thought we made a pretty strong team when we have people with expertise in visual impairment and then people with expertise in dietetics and nutrition, all aimed at trying to get kids ready for school proper nutrition making sure they grow as they should and making sure that parents know how they can work with their kids because it is when you don't have visu- when you have visual impairment then the way that you respond is a little differently and parents have to learn what those differences are and recognize them and respond to them it's easy to do but it just isn't something that you're prepared to do right from the start it needs a little help
1: a little help there. And and I'm sure that eating dinner, for instance, like at a regular time of 5 o'clock or eating breakfast at a regular time of, say, 7.30 in the morning helps with this, right?
0: Right. Regular meal times is very important. Eating with the family is very important. You know, we don't do that as much as we used to. When I was growing up, I ate every meal with the family. But that doesn't happen in today's society. We're too busy. We're too out. We're doing too many different things, but if we could start at infancy when babies really need help from their parents in learning how to eat, then you just kind of build on that and can make differences later. Can make a big difference later on, especially when they get to school and they're expected to eat themselves, eat by themselves when at snack time and at lunchtime and so forth during at the classroom. But if there can be just at least
1: sometimes the families and the blind and visually impaired kids can just Get together for dinner, you know. There, there—that sense of belonging in the family and in all parts of life—and mm-hmm. independence will increase.
0: Right. right, right. And there's really no great mystery about blindness in terms of it. It's such a there's kids are so hard to work with or anything like that. It's just a different way of doing things. And if we can educate parents to know how to do that, then we're that much farther ahead.
1: This is great. It sounds like that you will be filling that gap with education guidance for young children. We definitely look forward to seeing your research and help these kids gain some of the important independent living skills that they'll need later for school, work, and fun. Now, let's talk about how you speak out or reach out to acquire these research grants. The Tribune says that you've had more than 40 proposals funded and over $16 million. What are some of the additional proposals that you've written and how they helped blind and visually impaired children succeed in education and with life's challenges?
0: Well, a lot of my grants have been written collaboratively with other people, so it's not just me. It's with my colleagues at the university or sometimes at other universities. So one of the things that we had funded in the early 2000s was the National Center for Low Incidence Disabilities, and that was where my colleagues who uh, were educators of deaf children and educators of severely impaired children decided to work together and create an information center on low incidence disabilities. Low incidence disabilities, just as an aside, are those disabilities that comprise less than 2% of the school age population taken together and blindness itself is only one tenth of one percent of the school age population. So people don't always know how to work with those kids or what the expectations are. Often they have very little expectation for blind children instead of helping them to achieve their potential. So that grant lasted for about 10 years. We had several other grants as part of that, but this National Center basically died for lack of funding back in 2010, but also because the internet had developed to such a point that we weren't needed anymore. There was, I think, a lot of other collaboration going on out there. The internet makes that possible where it hadn't before. So there was really no need for our center anymore. I've also had several personnel preparation grants that again, because of the low incidence nature of visual impairment, people don't know that they can, that this is a separate profession of teaching blind children so the grants that we receive help us pop um what's the word uh publicize the profession and also help us bring in students because we provide support tuition support for them to take the courses that allow them to become certified as teachers of, of the visually impaired so it's um, mostly my work has been around that, about uh, some other research grants I've had, including looking at outcomes for visually impaired kids, what it, is it that makes the difference uh, in high school for young adults' working environments. Um, that was kind of interesting. Because, well, I don't know that it was interesting, because I think it's pretty much common sense, but we could take this study that was called the National Longitudinal Transition Study, and look at all the variables that were involved in that study and look at the visually impaired kids who were part of that study. And using um, a statistical procedure called linear regression, we could predict what it was that made for a successful competitive employment as adults. And it's probably is no surprise to you that those three, there were three things that really stood out, which were orientation and mobility, receiving that training, technology training, and Braille made the difference for what kids were competitively employed as young adults. So that was kind of an exciting project that didn't involve actually working with the kids, but taking somebody else's research and analyzing it for these kinds of factors that help us figure out what to do with kids.
1: One of your projects, Project Prism, It's the Mm -hmm. first child development study focusing on visually impaired kids and the ways that their development's different from, or the same as sighted kids. How do you explain this study to our listeners, and what were the results? You you were its principal investigator, by the way.
0: Yes, um, (laughs) that was a Study that I tried to get funded for about 10 years, and then it was finally funded in 1992. So, for five years from 1992 until 1997, we followed babies as soon as they were referred for services. We would pick them up by, we collaborated with several agencies across the country. And as babies were referred to those agencies, they asked them if they wanted to participate in this development study where we would track their development over that five year period. The thing that stood out to me was it wasn't blindness that made the difference. You know, We always talk about blindness as being such a major disability and it's such a terrible thing, And but that's not what my research showed me. It showed me that blindness was almost a, it was one aspect of development, but it didn't have to impact development. Kids who did not have any other disabilities um, regardless of their uh, visual diagnosis, many of them were right on track developmentally with kids that don't have disabilities. So that was really surprising to me. Um, but I was glad to see it at the same time. It sort of opened my own eyes to what the possibilities were. And I, I think that I sort of have gradually moved away from that View of blindness as being such a negative thing to blindness as being a positive thing, an opportunity for later development. The kids who had additional disabilities, and that was about 60% of the number of the population of kids involved in my study, those kids did have a harder time of it. They had more things that were going on other than blindness, and they could not do as well, they did not do as well developmentally as the kids that didn't have any additional disabilities. But that's a good thing to know, I think, and it's a good thing for parents to know that if there are additional disabilities, you might need more support from other disciplines other than visual impairment.
1: University of Northern Colorado says that you've written a number of publications and given a series of juried presentations. Um, What were some of these accomplishments that you can tell our listeners about? And what's a juried presentation? It's not like a courtroom jury, right?
0: (laughs) No, it's not. Uh, That's an academic term that's used at universities, and what it refers to is a publication that has been judged by others to be worthy of publication. When you write an article and you submit it to a journal, like the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness or the journal that's called Exceptional Children, they take your name off the article and then circulate it to other reviewers to say, is this worthy of publication? So that's all that it means. As All that juried means is that it's been judged to be worthy of publication by my peers. So my other special educators or other university professors would read it and say that. So I've done, I have done a lot of articles. Um, I have one now that we're looking at description, description enhanced assessment and Describing images in statewide assessments, and how important that is, and we found that for braille readers, that description, audio—I should, I'll call it audible image description—made a difference in how children who were braille readers responded to those questions. They had a, a much greater likelihood of responding to those questions accurately than they did if they, even if they had tactile graphics alone. So that was a, another kind of interesting. Aspect and that we're hoping to publish that one soon. We have I've had some other articles mostly on development, but a lot of things also in terms of policy, educational policy and how educational policy can impact visually impaired children.
1: Do you actually go to visually impaired conferences and talk to teachers of the visually impaired and orientation mobility teachers about your research and which conferences have you spoken at?
0: Yes, I do. It's one of the requirements of being a professor that you are expected to make presentations at conferences. And if you have juried presentations, which means, again, that they are accepted for presentation based on a review by your peers, then that holds more status at the university. So it's something that's used for uh, to it, for Tenure and promotion within a university setting. So I've gone to the National Federation of the Blind. I spoke at the American Council of the Blind. I've been to the Association for Education and Rehabilitation of the Visually Impaired, uh, the Council for Exceptional Children, the Division for Early Childhood of the Council for Exceptional Children. Um, mostly early childhood and visual impairment conferences because those are my loves.
1: Aside from you working at UNC. You've served on the U.S. Department of Education Institute for Education Sciences Scientific Review Panel. You were a Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind Trustee. You are, you're, uh, you've also been a univers- University of Northern Colorado Commencement Ceremonies Marshal. And you've also been a UNC Women's Basketball, Volleyball, and Football season ticket holder. Really? UNC has a women's (laughs) football team? Wow. Well, no. (laughs) Oh, they don't? Okay. No, just basketball and volleyball. Just basketball and volleyball, though. The football goes to the guys. Okay.
0: Yep, but I'm (laughs) still a season ticket holder for them.
1: Okay, so how do you balance all these activities and as a professor emerita and researcher?
0: Well, it's really easier now that I'm retired and an emerita professor, so I have more time that I can go to these activities. But football is always on the weekends and basketball and volleyball are always in the evening. So that's what gives me the time to do those kinds of things. The commencement ceremonies, Marshall, I I did for 10 years. I had to um, stop this year just because of some physical problems that I couldn't keep on doing it. But that was probably my greatest contribution to the university because What that commencement marshal does is decide how people line up, where they go, and make sure everybody gets in the right place at the right time. So that was really fun for me. Um, As a trustee for the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind, I learned a great deal. I started my teaching career at at the New York Institute for Special Education in New York. At that time, the time that I was teaching there, it was the New York Institute for Education of the Blind. So I had started my career there, and um, I always have a love for residential schools and for the kids and seeing all the kids at once. You don't see that in the public schools. There might be one kid in one classroom in one school in one district. You rarely do you see a large group of kids with visual impairment together. But at a school for the blind, you can actually see more kids at once. So it's always fun for me. I enjoyed serving for the as a trustee, and I, I think it's something that everybody should do, really.
1: What future research do you have planned in terms of studying the young, blind, and visually impaired community?
0: Oh, I think this grant on feeding and independent eating is probably my last grant. I'm getting up in age, and I don't think I'll be able to keep it up much longer.
1: How can our listeners learn more about you and contact you if they have any questions?
0: Well, you can always use my um email address, and I can give you that, um, k-a-y dot f-e-r-r-e-l-l at bears, b-e-a-r-s dot u-n-c-o dot e-d-u. Now, that's my emerita address. Uh The address you've been u- using, Brian, is my university address, but I'll only be there for two more years, so... Okay. The to address will be there forever. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I can't think of anything. You've really covered quite a lot in that small amount of time.
1: That's the way we do it on this show, and it's all okay. for the listeners. Well, Kay, you're a critical asset to the young blind and visually impaired children, providing guidance to their parents and educators, and you open up the doors to their bright futures.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. I didn't think I would. I was a little hesitant because I was a little shy about being on your show, but thank you. You
1: did a great job. (laughs) And so thanks so much for joining us today. Oh,
0: you're very welcome.
1: Before we go, I welcome your comments on this program, listeners. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind or or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. You can also check out my website at speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. Just look under the list of episodes and show news tab. My new email address is SpeakOut@ACBRadio.org, and my show archive is at acbradio.org slash speaking dash out dash for dash the dash blind. Please note that there is a link located at the top half of the page and below the heading that says Home Speaking Out for the Blind where you can subscribe to the podcast feed and listen to Speaking Out for the Blind shows ranging from episode 94 to the present. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out.
0: sports fans join us friday nights from 7 to 8 p.m. eastern for the world of sports with john and paul right here on the radiostorm.com and acb radio
1: mainstream
0: Yappy Holidays from GDUI. Merry Christmas.
1: Happy New Year.